You're listening to the Winter Hughes Podcast with Joe and Eric Hughes. And now, here's the Hughes Brothers. Welcome into the Winter Hughes Podcast, a Bay Area sports podcast. I'm Joe Hughes, your host, alongside my brother Eric Hughes. And a lot of content to get into, Rick, for the Oakland A's this week. Some fun stuff. The new Oakland lineups we've been getting a chance to see. The A's calling up one of their top prospects in Lawrence Butler, now a part of this team. And we'll see how long that's the case as Tony Kemp heads to the paternity list to make room for Lawrence Butler. How the A's can maybe try and massage their roster a little bit to make sure that Lawrence Butler, as long as he's hitting, keeps part of this roster. We also got to see some of the mental mistakes uh, that the A's have been making lately and that thin margin of error. Zach Geloff looks like he is born to play in the big leagues. And Dave Cavill breaking radio silence, coming out making some public comments for the first time in a long time and some interesting conversations there about revenue sharing and, you know, what to expect for the A's, whether it's in Oakland or Vegas, as long as John Fisher remains the owner and the Brewers. Now trying to take a page from the Oakland A's, the threat of relocation becoming the new weapon of choice for Major League Baseball. So a lot to get into. We'll start with the good Lawrence Butler called up. He is currently ranked as the A's fifth best prospect. We got a chance to see him for a couple games in Washington already before we taped this podcast. And on Saturday, had his first big league hit. An impressive shot, man. We were talking about it on the phone. I heard Dallas Braden kind of reference it kind of like a fishing line because the way that the ball just kind of carried. So it was like a really good cast. You and I were talking, it didn't have that like explosive look when you first saw it where it kind of like, wow, that's a no doubter. That ball's just taken off. It's going to carry on and on. But the ball just never stopped. I mean, it literally bounced hard off the wall. He missed a home run by that much. So early impressions, Lawrence Butler, we've seen him in right field. We've seen him in center field. Really athletic. What have you seen from him so far in the the small sample size we've got to see him in the big leagues? I've got to say, aesthetically, he's passing the test, right? Like, we all know if you love the A's, you love the green and gold. Green and gold isn't for everyone. And as you know, your your wife has even made you get some other hats and things (laughs) like that. But I really like how he's embraced it. And, uh, you know, his bat has got a gold bat on it, you know, and and I do like to see when a player comes to the team to kind of embrace the colors and try and embrace the culture. So he's already got me with the look, right? You you know, you're going to cross my path wrong if you come with some black cleats, right? He, he's already checked yeah, that. I've seen that, yeah. Uh, I know you've sent some highlights of AAA. So I have seen some of his pop and seen some of his power. You know, I, I don't waste too much of my time watching AAA stuff. But again, we we got not a waste of time. It's not a waste, you know. <laughs> well, I'm I'm, a, I'm an Oakland A's fan, and they're a big league team, so I'll come watch you when you're up in the big leagues. Now, getting a chance to see that he did go 0 for four the night before, but then that hop that he had, like, yeah, we we were just talking about it. You know, a lot of times you you see how fast it leaves, you see the angle that it leaves the your TV screen. And you know it's a no-doubter. With the angle that it left, you, you know, it left with a lot of speed. But the angle, it just didn't seem like it had that angle to go the distance. And to see that it hit, like, the top of the fence and, like, deep left center, that thing went far. And so it just shows how much power it had. Because every now and then you get those line drive home runs. Didn't really seem like it was going to be like that. I thought we were looking at a double in the gap. 
but that thing just smashed off there. He, he tore the uh, the laces off that. It was fun to watch. I can see why the A's see their potential in him, and uh, I, we'll we'll see what he does with his chance. You know, we we've seen some guys come up, and there is an adjustment period, and, and we know that it does come to confidence and getting that consistency. And, you know, he's not playing a position that's like, hey, we have a wide open role. So, you know, this is yours. He's going to get opportunities. He's going to have to make the most of those opportunities and and we'll see what he does with them. Yeah, I thought it was interesting, too. I mean, when he got to second base, he wiped his hand across his chest and it looked really cool because he was wearing the Kelly green and it had Oakland across his chest. And he did that because he's the guy who's coined the phrase New Oakland. Martin Gallegos had the conversation with him in an article this spring, and he talked about this iteration of these guys coming up. Zach Geloff, Tyler Soderstrom, Denzel Clark, obviously Lawrence Butler, Nick Allen, these guys that he's played with and come up through the minor league system, that they're looking at becoming the new Oakland. And I really thought that that was kind of a poignant moment when he got there, had Oakland across his chest, because that's one of the things that he represents. He's a prospect. We hope that the A's are playing in Oakland for a long, long time and not moving on to Vegas, but you love people that embrace that culture. It's part of the reason Chris Bassett was so beloved by this fan base, not only for his performance on the field, but he really embraced being part of this community. And you've heard for the last couple decades how important being an A was for some of these players that have gone through that. And to see a young guy embrace that before he's really even had a chance to establish himself that he wants to be part of that new Oakland I think that's really cool. And like you said, he's got all the flair. He's really leaned into being a member of the Oakland A's. Not like he's a guy that like grew up down the street from the stadium or anything like that, but really just trying to be part of this culture and set that example. I think that's really cool. And that's that's kind of what you want if you're a fan, right? Absolutely. And, you know, we already know there's enough guys that don't want to be here, right? And as fans, we love this team and we get it. You know, it's not as glitzy and glamorous as some of the other cities or some of the other towns or stadiums that you could go be in. But we love it. And then to see somebody come in and embrace that culture, it, it gives you that feeling of like, yes, that's what we're here for. At the beginning of the season, this is what we expected, to see young players that you can keep an eye on for the future. And that's what we were really hoping to see. And then there was just a lot of noise outside of baseball that was taking away from that. A lot of veterans that were coming in and taking spots away and not really producing and just leading to like a what's going on, then getting news like, oh, we're going to Vegas. So it just so much distraction from what was happening. I think we definitely talked about it at the podcast, but I think a lot of A's fans kind of felt like, This is how it goes cyclically and that now we're going to come in, we're going to see these young guys. Now we are seeing that and this core that you can see potentially in the future, it definitely has potential to be a really exciting core. It's going to be interesting to see how these can keep Lawrence Butler on this roster if they're able to do that for the rest of the season. His roster spot right now is created because Tony Kemp is on the paternity list and, you know, we're hoping for good news and want to see Tony have another beautiful baby and welcome that into the world, a future A, if you will. And in the meantime, Lawrence Butler gets his chance to kind of show his skills at this big league level. He hasn't spent a lot of time in AAA. He can play the outfield, all three positions. He's got the athleticism to play center field and got a chance to do that in his second game. He can also play first base a little bit. Positionless baseball does exist now, but the A's are going to have to make some decisions because when Tony Kim comes back, 
how are you going to keep him on this roster with that flexibility? Because right now, Seth Brown getting a lot of time at first base. Eventually, in the next week or so, Ryan Noda might be back. And now you've got three guys that you're trying to get into that first base position, let alone trying to find playing time for Estuary Ruiz, J.J. Blade, Seth Brown, Tony Kemp. And then at first base, it's going to be Noda, Soderstrom, you know, maybe Lawrence Butler, every once in a while, Jordan Diaz. So it's a good kind of problem to have this many guys that you're trying to fit into a lineup because you believe in their potential and their talent. But it's still a little bit of a problem trying to massage those numbers and make sure that everyone's getting enough at bats and enough playing time to feel like, just like we've been talking about, the poster child for this has been Zach Eloff finding success, being like, hey, you're second base every day. You might be hitting first, you might be hitting second, maybe hitting third, but you're going to be at second base. And how that's helped a guy get comfortable because it's one less thing you have to think about. It was similar to Matt Olson, right? When he came up, he was playing a lot of right field. With Butler, I wouldn't worry too much because he is still so young. Knowing that he spent some time in AA, very little time in AAA, and knowing that this is the beginning of seeing those guys come up. I would definitely wouldn't rush Butler, and I hope that they're not going to. Give him some time in AAA until he has that spot ready where he can come up, and you can come up, and you can struggle, because then it takes that pressure off, and maybe you're not going to struggle. But I think when you don't have that clear opening, and it you have this feeling like you got to come in and battle, and you do. It is pro sports. There are other guys for your position. You do got to come in and deliver. But when you're a younger guy and you're going against older guys, veterans, Aled Mestiz is a, a former all-star, you know, so for Geloff going against that, but to have that that clearer path and to know, like, we got your back, we believe in you, it's okay to make mistakes. It takes a little bit of pressure off. It lets you, you know, try and make a play that, man, maybe you shouldn't have, you, maybe you should have done something else there. But you're not going to get benched for that because we believe you, we know you're young, and it lets you focus on the other things. When you don't have that path, that's another noise that comes in and adds extra static. Now, I have to deliver. This is my chance. I'm not going to get a chance tomorrow. I'm playing because it's the other guy's rest day. I think when I look at Soderstrom, his body language really reminds me of Matt Olson's body language when we, when he came up. And, you know, everyone's different. Everyone has different personalities. When you look at Geloff, he's just got a big old smile on his face. Looks like he's really enjoying his ball. Soderstrom just looks a little more serious, and it looks like he knows this isn't going the way he wanted it to, but he also doesn't have that like, hey, you got the keys. This is your position. Do what you will with it. I heard his manager on the A's cast, Fran Riegerden, uh, talking about how Soderstrom just needs to let the game come to him. And once he does that, that's when things kind of take off because of how capable his bat is. And you're right. I think that that's part of it is just try to figure out, am I playing first today? Am I going to have to think about catching? And am I going to have to do the mental preparation for how I'm going to handle this staff versus you know, being a designated hitter and trying to find a way to stay engaged in the game and have to figure out big league pitching. I think he has looked a little bit more comfortable. We've seen him laying off some pitches that earlier he was just, you know, swinging at everything with a couple cheeks in there, trying to like swing hard in case he hit it. And I think he's starting to relax a little bit more in that regard. And yesterday or on uh, Saturday, he had a bunch of hard hit balls that, you know, wound up not going for a hit. But when you're hitting the ball over 100 miles an hour, they have that expected batting average and it was high, kind of unlucky for him. We've heard Vince Catronio talking about, the similarities between Matt Chapman and Matt Olson when they came up is Geloff 
and Soderstrom. You know, one was a little bit more gregarious and like personable, the other a little bit more reserved and quiet. And that's kind of where Soderstrom and Matt Olson kind of tie into each other. So it's interesting, but you're right. Zach Eloff, though, man, this guy looks like he has been in the big leagues for a lot longer than just, you know, 25 games or so. And he's already set the record for six homers in 22 games, the fastest player in A's franchise history, not just in Oakland history. When you think about guys like Jason Giambi or Mark McGuire, Jose Canseco, no, I mean, we're talking about Jimmy Fox. Like nobody's gotten to that many homers faster than Zach Geloff. Looked up his FWAR last night. He's only played 24 games. He's already ranked by war as the third most valuable player on this A's team. Now, they are the worst team in baseball. It's a lower bar than most teams, but in 24 games, he's already established himself as one of the most valuable players. He's been one of their top prospects for a while, and this is what you're talking about, that excitement coming up, and Zach Geloff is an at-bat worth watching every single time. He's got a lot of pop. He's hitting those homers, and when he's not hitting homers, he's hitting doubles in the gap and so he's just a really exciting player to watch I think that's kind of what we were hoping to see this season is these young players that kind of give you a glimpse of the future I don't want to put too much pressure on him you know he's a young guy but he's clearly a guy the A's believe in there was the game who were they playing it was like the eighth inning and it was kind of getting down to it and he's the Rangers the Rangers and he went for the play at home Instead of going for the out at first, he should have given up the run, gone for the out at first, tried to do the hero play, get him at home, didn't get the out at home, a run scores. Then the next one is hit to center field, it's caught, and a run comes into third, right? If you had just gotten that out at first, then let's say the same thing happens, right? Which you never know, maybe it changes pitch call and this and that. But if the butterfly effect, right? But then, like, then if the next one's the the out to center, you're out of the inning, you gave up one run, right? But now you went for the hero play, you didn't get it, uh, and now there's two runs that you've given up there, right? The thing is, is, like, that's a play that you should know. It is, like, something that you should have experienced before, but it shows that the A's are like, it's okay, you're going to make those mistakes. It could show, like, this the difference of the speed in the game, where in AAA or AA, even it wasn't hit that hard to him, but maybe he thought, "Oh, I, I can get that guy right." We're right. up in the big leagues. No, you can't get that guy. You got to go get that out. But it shows like it's okay. You can make that mistake, and you're still going to bat third tomorrow. You're still going to play second because we believe in you. Whereas if you're maybe Soderstrom or somebody else where your position isn't that clear, maybe it's a little harder to flush that mistake. And that stays with you. And now that impacts the next play or it impacts your next at-bat. We've seen some of those mental mistakes and how thin that margin of error is for the A's in this process of learning to win. We've been talking about it from losing better to learning how to win. And you're right. That's one of those plays. And Mark Kotze talked about it afterwards where, you know, he was being a bit ambitious and trying to go at home in that play. We saw the game on Saturday. Luis Medina with one of the most bizarre plays I've ever seen with the ball that Came back to him. Should have been an easy out at first base, but he lollygagged. That's all I was thinking about was the Bull Durham, like, bunch of lollygaggers. Just jogging over so casually that it was it was almost funny just watching the runner and the whole Washington dugout just kind of like, is this really happening? Even Tyler Soderstrom was like, what is going on here? And they had a great shot on the TV broadcast. 
and it was like a shot over the back of Luis Mendina, and you're just looking in the dugout, Mark Kotze just like like glaring out there at the mound. My daughter's softball team has a cheer when like something like that happens and it goes, that's why we hustle, that's why we hustle, and it just yeah. keeps repeating that. But as a fan and as somebody that watches with children that are ball players, like you do get a little frustrated watching those things. Like when you are out there between those lines, you need to hustle. Trust me, you get plenty of break time to catch your breath. We are not asking you to run that far. You're running from the pitcher's mound to first base. Yeah. You got 90 feet usually is the farthest you're running. You toss it. You know, it's underhanded over there. toss it. So it is really frustrating when you see those big leaders that, you know, are lollygagging. So I I think that's why a guy like David Eckstein becomes a a fan favorite around the league when you just see a guy like, I got walked, I'm going to sprint to first like I'm in the Olympics, you know? So you are there to hustle. So, but, you know, going back to Geloff, it's okay to make mistakes. And what you love about him is that he knows that the organization trusts in him so he can flush that mistake and he's not going to let it impact him. He's not going to let that mistake impact the next app app or the next game, or the next two games. So that's a big difference when you see that clear path. But they are young. They are going to make those mistakes. I think Medina probably thought because he got that ball so quick that the guy must have been jogging out of the box, right? And he was like, I've got it. He's not even going. He's probably halfway back in the dugout. But that's why we hustle. And probably a mistake he'll never, ever make again. Like, that is a hard lesson learned. It was it was all over Twitter. You're seeing it shared by John Boy and Barstool, and it was blowing up on Twitter in a way that you don't want. You know, like, there's a rule that you don't want to be the main character of Twitter. And not that he got to that level. He didn't do anything bad, you know, as far as, like, notorious. But it's something you don't want to be known for, especially when you're just kind of establishing your big league career and people getting to know you, you don't want to blow up and wind up on SportsCenter for that kind of play and be there on that Friday, not top 10. By his own doing, he made things harder than it needed to be, but he did limit it to just that one run. He did have another mental mistake later in the game where he allowed a runner to kind of distract him and force him into a pitch violation, but he finished that at bat with a strikeout. And we saw the A's going out to talk to him, make sure that he brought his focus. And you saw him nodding along. He's like, you're right. You're right. I got to be back here. And so a lesson learned. And that's what you want to see from these mistakes. Mistakes are okay as long as you're learning from them and just not repeating them constantly. And that's what's going to happen with this young A's roster, the new Oakland roster. We'll live with some of that. And you talk about those guys learning and those hustles and those guys endearing it. You had a cool experience at the game last weekend, the A's and Giants, the Battle of the Bay as the A's got that win. You had somebody sitting right in front of you who's one of those guys. JTA, Juan Toscano Anderson, the pride of, you know, East Oakland was out there at the game that you were sitting right in front of. And he's a guy that when his time with the Warriors was one of those guys that just endeared himself to fans, not just because of his Bay Area ties, but the way that he played when he was on the court. Kind of funny the way uh, I got to talking to Juan Toscano Anderson. It was a day game, Sunday game of the Giants series, which as you know, if you've been to the Coliseum on a day game, those seats turn into little personal pizza ovens. Yeah. And so I uh, I was looking for my little ace towels. I was going to grab those and throw those down. My wife has these kind of ridiculous placemats. They're, they look like <laughs> jeans. They even have a jeans pocket in it. You can 
put the silverware in. I couldn't find my A's towels, so I just grabbed the placemats and I took those. And sure enough, the seats were ovens. We sat out and I put those down. They worked really well. My wife went to go get some snacks and yep, JTA comes down and he's the row right in front of me. He's got some food and he sits down and he pops up like, ha, ah, you know, those are championship cheeks. You know, we, yeah. we can't have those things getting burned there. So I asked him if he wanted to use the little thing I had and he used it, you know, cooled it down. I I, I might start uh, making these seat cooler things and start, <laughs> you know, brought to you by uh, Winter Hughes. So we got some official merch. Coming. I was going to say, we got to talk to like Last Dive Bar, see if they'll start making like seat coolers and everything like that. They could even get the cell ones. Cool to see him. You know, a lot of people were coming to talk to him. I didn't really want to bother him. He's sitting there watching the game, you know, and then my family came back and all the kids were there and he was kind of looking and then we got to making some small talk. He's got a little one coming on the way. So congrats to him and his fiance and, uh, Good luck to him in his career. I know he's trying out for the Warriors here, so I hope he'll uh, have a good run, and it'd be great to see him back there. But going back to the Cheeks uh, in that game, Nick Allen, he was uh, two-cheeking it twice up there, and we were really swinging it. You know, like he needed to get those at-bats. A similar thing to Soderstrom where he's putting the bat on the ball, but it's just not turning into hits. And then when he got a little more clear path, I know he wasn't battling Jace Peterson for time, but maybe Jace Peterson going opened up some other opportunities for other people to go other places. Anyway, they've got they've gone a little younger. Nick Allen's getting some more at bats, and man, has he just taken off with this? So hopefully that's a similar thing they can do for Soderstrom. But yeah, it was just a cheeky day that Sunday. Entering Sunday, hitting two seventy eight four runs a double a triple the two homers that he had in the game against the Giants five RBI three walks over his last 11 games after hitting just 143 over his first 16 games I think you're right it's part of that confidence of being like I belong here we talked about that with Brent Rooker having that experience at the all-star game where he got voted in by his peers and helping establish that confidence that like yeah I belong here. I'm going to be in the lineup tomorrow. I'm going to be in the lineup every day and not, I've got to make something happen today. I've got to do it today because I'm not playing tomorrow and I've got to show them that I belong. And the A's right now are giving those guys opportunity. Jordan Diaz is going to be your everyday third baseman right now. Nick Allen going to be your everyday shortstop. Zach Geloff at second base. We're going to see what happens at first base when Ryan Noda comes back right now. It's Seth Brown and Tyler Soderstrom. Maybe Lawrence Butler gets a chance in there every once in a while while he's up. So we're going to kind of see those things get established over the course of time. And, you know, a guy that's kind of establishing himself, at least defensively, his bat is what we're waiting to see come around. Shea Langoliers, I got some stats for you on Shea Langoliers, who has been elite at throwing guys out. There's a stat that is on StatCast this year. It's catchers caught stealing above average. He is third in baseball, above average, catching guy stealing. And I looked more into this stat. It's basically that not every attempt at stealing second base is created equal. You have to consider how big is the lead that a guy has? Where is the pitch coming in and how fast is it coming in? You know, is it a lefty? Is it a righty? How fast is the guy that's trying to steal that? It takes all of those things into consideration to see how much of an opportunity a guy had. And they use an example from a Dodgers player, Will Smith, really struggled in this series. And you're like, man, that guy hasn't thrown out anybody. But you're looking at, well, he had one of the slowest pitchers in baseball on the mound. 
The guy had this huge lead. One of the fastest runners in the league had this huge lead. So he had no chance when he made that throw to second base. So don't put the onus on the catcher who's going to take the blame for that. Taking all those things into account, Shea Langoliers is good for six above average caught stealing. That's how good his arm has been. We've seen Zach Geloff. We've seen the kind of trend. Tony Kemp doing the same thing, taking that throw way in front of the bag. That's their better opportunity rather than kind of post it up with two feet straddling the bag and trying to get the hand down. Guys are catching that way in front of the bag and trying to make that swipe tag, get a part of the body before a hand gets in. But Shea Langoliers, he's ahead of Sean Murphy right now. He's ahead of Christian Bethencourt, Jonah Heim, some of the other A's catchers that have come up there. He's been one of the best in baseball this season. And so while his bat is still kind of coming around, we've seen some better at-bats from him. It's good to see Shea Langoliers still having that impact behind the plate. You brought up a really good point, right? Like, it's not just the catcher making that throw. And we've seen Langoliers, like, making terrific throws. But that that is one of the really interesting things about getting all those different data sets of like how quick the pitcher delivers, how big a lead the guy has. Because when you look at the other side of something that we mentioned earlier is how many expected strikes, I think, were like called balls. And it was a right. really high number. Let's go back to that butterfly effect of like, what did that do for the pitchers? What did that do for that at bat? where really it's not on Shea Langoliers. It's the fault of the umpire, you know, and, and it is a difficult game and it, the balls are moving really fast. I got you there. But when you factor those things in, it really shows what level he was. And I've seen enough of him that that's kind of why I thought he could be a dark horse all-star candidate, right? Because he did, he was just so far ahead of in a year where the, it's just designed to help those bases be stolen and it's designed to help those base runners and he's like doesn't matter doesn't matter yeah and so he's just been a machine back there um it, it's been well, really we've seen see that. we've seen people stealing second to third it's almost automatic i think the success rate is near 90 percent when a guy gets to second base to steal third so you're right because of things being realigned cutting that runner down at second is a huge advantage if that success rate from second to third is that big, you're saving not just the 90 feet and keeping a guy at a scoring position, but you're also cutting down on potential sack flies, just making it easier for the other team to score. If robo-umps or the challenge system comes to Major League Baseball in the next year or so and helps with that framing so that he gets more balls inside the strike zone called and his bat comes around, the potential for Shea Langoliers to be a star is huge. And right now, we're, we're waiting to see it. You know, he's a guy that the A's, I think, we're counting on a little bit more this year after what we saw when he got called up. And it's been more of the rookies like Estuary Ruiz and Ryan Noda that have carried that load. But I think there's a really high potential for Shea Langoliers to take that big leap. Like, you wonder who's going to take that leap. And I think he's the best candidate maybe for the A's to take that jump into stardom based on what he's learned to do this year and that base skill set he has with his defense. And I did want to ask you something. We saw Dave Cavill, the A's president, break his radio silence this week and come out. There was a fire at Schnitzer Steel, which is not part of the port where the A's were looking at Howard Terminal, but it is a private business right next to the port. And the A's have had a contentious relationship with Schnitzer Steel. They've sued them a couple times. They currently have a lawsuit they're presenting Dave Cavill, out of nowhere, just popped off and started firing off all these tweets about 
schnitzer steel. Nothing about relocation, nothing about, you know, leaving the team or leaving Oakland, but just going off on an old enemy. And it kind of raised a lot of eyebrows, whether that he was doing this because the A's are still looking at Oakland as a backstop or if he's just trying to save face personally and be like, guys, look, everything I do, it's not all bad. Look what I'm doing for, you know, the community of Oakland, even though I am taking your baseball team. But we are trying to get rid of this polluter. <laughs> like, Yeah, I'm not too sure. I mean, I, I, I'm I, not on Twitter, so I don't really pay too much attention about it. I, I do see some news about it here and there. I saw something like Brody Brazil with some question marks, like not really understanding it. From what you're saying, I'm just kind of figuring like, It'd be like a guy that didn't really get along with his neighbor and then saw a tow truck yeah. come up and he's bringing back his neighbor's car and it's totaled and he's just like, ah, 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 like, so uh, maybe it doesn't have to do with any of us or any A's fans and he's just kind of rejoicing in someone else's uh, tragedy. I, I wouldn't really put it past him. But we did get some quotes. Uh, shout out to Sheena Rubin of the Mercury News. She did get Dave Cavill on record and had some interesting quotes and Jason Burke wrote an article that basically said that Dave Cavill said the quiet part out loud in this article because a big issue for the A's, whether it's here in Oakland or in Vegas, has been the revenue sharing. They're back on the revenue sharing. They get a chunk of it, not a full share. But if they get a deal done, a binding deal done by January 15th of next year, they will be on revenue sharing long term. Otherwise, they're going to lose that money. And the quote from Shana Rubin was from Dave Cavill, quote, the revenue share was an important financial contribution to field a product on the field. So yes, it was a material factor in terms of the deadline for the A's moving. So the A's leaving and needing to get a deal done, a binding deal done, whether it's in Vegas or in Oakland, was because they need to stay on revenue sharing. That's what Dave Cavill is saying, that they need to be that you know welfare team, basically, and have the other owners support the product that John Fisher's putting on the field. It comes into something that Casey Pratt's been talking about. Why would the owners approve the A's relocation knowing all of these things? That relocation fee will be waived. That the A's are going to stay on revenue sharing and moving to a smaller market so they'll get more money from the owners. Why are we going to have to give them such a sweetheart deal? And that question has not been answered. Basically, John Fisher bought the A's. They have increased in value substantially, valued at $2 billion, and that's before a new stadium is built. And the team on the field is being funded by the other owners. So it's just a cash cow for him. So I don't know why he would sell, but for the other owners, why are we going to continue to support this guy's cash cow? I don't know what MLB's plan is, but it's something that you said that you learned from Gary Radnich is follow the money, right? And so you think about that and you got to think, why are these guys willing to give up so much money? They must have some sort of view or belief that there is a potential to make a lot more. We already know that MLB is looking at expansion once they get some of these other things done. When you look at a lot of other sports, NFL is going and playing in Europe and in Mexico. Um, you know, uh, soccer, they're coming and playing in America and they're like, should we have a Champions League game there and this and that? Uh, I know baseball already has, you know, teams in Canada. 
But maybe they're already talking like, yeah, we're going to expand a little bit. And then we're going to throw in a Mexico City team. Then we're going to throw in another team over here. And maybe they're looking at going more global and including uh, Korean baseball somehow in the system or something. So maybe they're like, look, we just, this is the next stone. We're working. We've got a pyramid plan that we're working on. We're on step one. Forget the A's. Give them their money. And guess what? Once we get Korea here, they're going to be paying all of us all this. So who knows what the plan is, but it's a follow the money thing. If that's what they agree to do, it must in the long run make sense to them. I'm sure that Rob Manfred is trying to quell the other owners that, hey, an expansion franchise, each one is going to bring in you know, more than that. It's going to bring in close to a billion dollars that's going to be distributed amongst you. And you're not even going to notice that drop in the bucket that is the A's getting this revenue sharing. But in the meantime, it just doesn't make sense when the A's are basically admitting that they are not putting their own money into fielding and competitive team, not just this year, but in that previous iteration, when they were competitive, it was the other owners paying to make that so. And I'm sure that that rubs a lot of the owners the wrong way. I've I've heard from owners around baseball when I was covering the Giants about how irked they were about the way that the A's were doing that and that they weren't putting all that money towards the team on the field. I heard something today. There's a soccer game on Sunday morning in England. It's Chelsea, a team in London, versus Liverpool, a team in Liverpool. And the broadcaster said Chelsea owned by the same group that owns the Dodgers and Liverpool owned by the Fenway group. And the broadcaster said it's the owner of the Dodgers versus the owner of the Red Sox. And that is a soccer game in a whole nother country. Looking at that kind of thing, I wouldn't be surprised that baseball has more global ambitions and they just see a bigger global market and they just look at the A's as just a little ripple in the pond. And it's concerning that the A's potential move to Vegas could be the example that Major League Baseball will use for other markets like Milwaukee or Arizona. And Milwaukee this week said that they're going to start exploring relocation. They're going to start looking at other places because they want more money from the city and the state to improve their ballpark, which is less than 20 years old. That is a big threat, I think, that Vegas needs to look at, even Oakland needs to look at, and why you know the Oakland City Council and the mayor were so insistent on making sure that they weren't backstopping the ballpark being built. They were willing to do the investment for the infrastructure around the ballpark, but not the ballpark itself, because that tax district, it's not going to start you know, bearing fruit for 30 years. And now what we're seeing in Milwaukee in a similar situation is before that 30 years when the team is going to start paying those taxes back, that, hey, we're going to ask for more. Now you've got to fix our ballpark that you built for us. You got to give us $300 million more million or we're leaving. And so that is a real serious threat that I think other cities should look at because relocation, the threat of relocation has become the new weapon of choice for Major League Baseball. And if they make the A's move or they allow the A's to move, that threat will feel very real to other cities very soon. This has been the Winter Hughes podcast. New episodes debut every Monday. You can find us on social media at Winter Hughes. You can find me on social media at Vegas Joe Hughes. And we'll talk again next week. Thanks for listening to the Winter Hughes podcast. Make sure to like and subscribe.